Just hours before Jesus was to be arrested, he washed the disciples' feet, including Peter. Shortly after that, he said something kind of odd. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He followed that up by saying, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What's kind of odd about that is, why is that a new commandment? The commandment to love your neighbors yourself had been around for hundreds of years. What is new about that? And what is it that allows the Christ follower to love at such a level that is other than what is possible without Christ, that it actually becomes the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus? I would suggest to you that in that moment, in the upper room, Peter had virtually no idea how to answer those questions. But 30 years later, he would write a beautiful, theologically rich explanation of the answer to those questions. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been working our way through 1 Peter. We find ourselves in chapter 1, verse 22. I mentioned last week the importance of understanding Christianity is not a try-harder religion. It is understanding what God has done for us through Christ, then believing that, and based on a new belief system, There is an outflow of new behavior. I mentioned last week, Paul writes his letters that way with the front end loaded with doctrine, the back end loaded with application. Peter does it a little differently, kind of keeps weaving the two together back and forth through the whole letter, and that's evident in our text this morning. So verse 22, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. So this is past tense. Uh, The Greek grammar is the perfect tense, which means something that happened in the past but has ongoing ramifications. Since verses 3 through 12 are true, you have been radically born again on the basis of the mercies of God uh, in obedience to the truth, basically is Peter's language for having believed the gospel. You'll see him use this terminology consistently. To obey is to believe. To disobey is to disbelieve. So on the basis of our belief, our acceptance of the gospel, our souls have been purified. It's temple language. He uses that a lot in his letter. In verse 2, he talked about sprinkled with the blood, which is temple language. Last week, in the previous paragraph, he talked about the blood of the lamb, which is temple language. Here again, temple language, on the basis of our obedience, our belief in the gospel, we have been cleansed from the sin that defined us so we stand righteous in the presence of a holy God. But it's for something. 
Whenever you read through the Bible, we're always called, chosen, saved for something. It's not ever an end to itself, but for something. In this case, for a sincere or genuine love of the brethren, one another. Uh, fervently love one another. So if that's what we're saved for, then you get to the commandment. Then do it fervently, passionately. It's the word that was used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying. It's a very strong term. Uh, it's kind of get your game face on and do it. If you are saved for it, then do it. Fervently love one another from the heart. Why? For you have been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, to the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Again, the basis by which we love is not trying harder. It's that we have been radically changed. We've been born again through a seed which is imperishable. The idea of a perishable seed is illustrated in the quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. Life in the flesh, life apart from the imperishable seed of God is like grass. It's like a flower. Here today, gone tomorrow. But when that's all we have, it creates these fears, these insecurities, this hopelessness, this despair. It creates this performance-based system because everything about it is self-oriented. When I'm in charge of my own safety and my own security, when I'm functioning as my own God, the system requires me to be selfish, to be focused on myself. I am self-righteous. I am self-sufficient. I am selfish. That's really the only option on the table until we have been set free from that orientation that defines us. That's the result of the perishable seed. That's who we are apart from Christ. What makes us dramatically different is when we have been born again by an imperishable seed. That now everything we talked about in verses 3 through 12 is true of us, not based on our performance, but based on the grace and mercy of God. That completely changes our orientation and allows us to be set free to actually love one another. What was different about Jesus' commandment, a new commandment I give to you, is Jesus said that you love one another as I have loved you. That was virtually not possible until God fulfilled the promise of salvation, that we might be radically born again. And all those longings and desires and insecurities could be addressed in who we are now in Christ, and our hope is found in him. Now that we have been set free from the selfishness that defined us, it is possible to love one another at a whole new level. That's in essence what uh, Jesus was talking about there. So when we're talking about loving one another, what exactly are we talking about? It's helpful to remind ourselves biblical love is not defined by a feeling. 
It doesn't mean we gather together and have kind of warm, fuzzy feelings about each other. That's probably just not realistic. Biblical love is a commitment of the will. It's a choice I make to think of someone else as more important than myself, to stop thinking about myself all day long and to think of others, which is really not possible until we have experienced the new birth in Christ. There's a lot of good deeds that unsaved people do, but at the end of the day, it's rooted in self-orientation. It's about their own shame. It's about their own guilt. It's about their own self-righteousness. It's about a feeling they want to get. At the end of the day, it roots back to something selfish within them that is driving the action. And it's only when we have been radically changed by the power of Jesus that something real and dramatic within us changes. And we choose to love one another. Now let's face the fact that the church is made up of people. Sinners and misfits and losers who have been made right by the power of Jesus. And the fact is, people are quirky. People are odd. People are a little bit weird. I know I am. It's true of all of us, isn't it? We're all kind of quirky and weird. I've often thought if something ever happened to Patty, I doubt I could remarry. I can't imagine letting someone else into the weird world that is Brian. We all are odd in our own ways. And yet, at the end of the day, what brings us together is our understanding of what is true of us in Christ. That every single one of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, what is described in verses 3 through 12 is equally true of all of us. We learn to see one another through a new lens, a lens of theology that describes how absolutely magnificent we are in Christ. One of the things that our world, our culture, is really struggling with is there is this growing sense of tension between peoples. There's more anger, there's more racial tension, you kind of feel all this stuff unraveling. There's kind of this desperate desire to somehow bring us together, but it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And what people don't realize is a secular worldview does not have a belief system that pulls people together. It actually has a belief system that repels people. It's so selfish and protective and self-oriented that ultimately it's only going to create more and more anger, more and more conflict. I'm not a prophet, but I would suggest to you it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better if we continue down this path. However, the Christian worldview actually has a belief system by which we come together. First of all, we believe that all people are created equally in the image of God. Nobody more than, nobody less than. But for those who by faith have trusted Christ as Savior, we all stand 
equally righteous in the presence of a holy God because it's not based on our performance. It's based on who we are in Christ. Therefore, it's irrelevant if you're black or white, if you're male or female, if you're rich or poor, if you're two months into the journey or 50 years into the journey. We all stand equal before a holy God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, it's a belief system by which we come together as one people to love one another. That is kind of the the unique thing that distinguishes us as the people of God from those who choose not to believe. Now, I have to say, the older I get, the more weary I am becoming by Christians who are so cynical about the church. I expect that from unbelievers. I'm weary of Christians that have become so cynical about the church. Cynicalism is a position of superiority. Somehow those that are cynical believe somehow they've figured it out and they sit in a position of superiority above everybody else who apparently can't figure it out. And for those who are so cynical, a good starting place to gain some perspective is perhaps to look in the mirror and realize that they have their own struggles and baggage. They don't sit superior. They're no better. They're no worse. But we all come equally on the basis of who we are in Christ together as the people of God, and that's how we should view one another. I grant you, if you want to find hypocrites in the church, you can. They're in every church. Frankly, they're in every gathering of people anywhere in the universe. I acknowledge that. Nobody's ever said the church is a gathering of perfect people. But I'll also tell you this. If you're willing to open up your eyes and look, the church is full of wonderful, serious, God-honoring Christ followers. This weekend, thousands of people will walk through these doors who love Jesus. They are serious about their faith. Some are new believers, some are mature believers. But they are people that sincerely want their lives to matter. Every week they lay their lives down. They sacrifice a considerable amount of time, talent, and treasure to invest in the things that will last forever. They deeply care about representing Christ out into the marketplace and into the community and into the schools and the neighborhoods and their family. They're people that sacrifice a great deal to make a difference in the world. And those people are all around you if you choose to look. I tell you this morning, unapologetically, I love the church, and I love this church. This church is full of people who wonderfully model what it means to be a Christ follower. I will tell you this. One of the great privileges of my life is the opportunity I have to call 
you people, my family. We are a people. We are the people of God, called out and made radically new by the power of Jesus. And our calling is to fervently love one another. Which goes to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because this is true, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, So the question would be, well, how exactly, like practically speaking, what does this love look like? What Peter offers is a clothing metaphor. Putting off is like taking off articles of clothing. And then he lists five things. So we put aside, these are behaviors that should not define us. Malice is is, uh, kind of like uh, mean-spiritedness, being unkind to others. Deceit is literally a Greek term that was used to describe the baiting of a hook or the baiting of a trap. Those of us that love to fish understand that fishing is the art of deception. And that's ultimately what this word is referring to. Deceit is half-truths. It's deception. Not only have we as a culture abandoned the concept of absolute truth, we've by and large abandoned the concept of truth. We just lie as a way of life. As long as our version of truth advances our cause, then that's good enough for us. We live in a culture where everybody lies. The government lies, the politicians lie, the media lies, uh, the, the schools lie, the preachers lie, husbands lie, wives lie. Everybody lies as a way of life. And this is devastating our culture. There is no possibility of cultivating genuine love in a culture of lies and deceit. It requires that we are people of truth. Put aside hypocrisy. It's a theater term. It means to wear a mask or to play a role. It's pretending to be one thing at church and something else at home or out in the marketplace. If we're going to be people of love, then we're authentic, we're genuine. And envy and slander, those are kind of cousins. Envy is, I'm jealous of something. I'm jealous of who you are, your status, your money, your stuff, your looks, your power, your position, whatever. Slander is, as a result of that, then I I talk you down to other people. So you could kind of turn it around and take the positive. What does it mean to sincerely love? Well, we are kind-hearted to one another. We are truthful. We are genuine. We celebrate one another. And we build one another up with our talk. Verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Basically, Peter reaffirms that what's necessary to live this way, what's necessary to love this way, is that we feed on the word of God. You have to understand it, you have to believe it, and then the outflow is behavior. So how is this love possible if you are not 
feeding on the word of God in order to nourish your soul. He uses the imagery, the metaphor, like a baby longing for milk. It's, uh, the word of God is to us spiritually what milk is to a baby physically. Now, that's a great metaphor that leads me to offer to you the suggestion of an experiment. A lot of Christians are dissatisfied with their Christian life. Feels kind of dull and boring and it doesn't really work for them and they kind of get frustrated. Why isn't it different? And yet, for some reason, there's a disconnect that they spend very little time feeding on the word of God and then they wonder why their spiritual lives are so malnourished. So here's a way to think about it. I want you to think about this last week. And honestly, how many times did you spend feeding on the Word of God? Not a little blip on the radio, but actually opening up the book and spending some time feeding on the Word of God. So let's say you were here last week, so we'll count that. That's a really good option. That's once. So maybe one other time during the week, let's say that you opened up the Bible and actually spent some time reading the Bible and trying to nourish your soul. Twice in a week. Let's go with that. So here's the experiment. This coming week, however many times you partook of the Word of God last week, match that by how many times you eat food this coming week. So two times is not two times a day. It's two times. So over the next seven days, eat twice. And notice the effect on your physical body. Notice the loss of energy. Notice the struggle, the distraction. Notice everything that goes with that and then maybe get a clue that neglect of the food of the Word of God has an equal effect on your ability to grow spiritually. That's in essence what Peter just said. Verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and uh, he, will, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is precious value then is for you who believe. So for all believers, there is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. When Jesus said to the religious leaders, you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. What Jesus was referring to is not the rebuilding of a physical temple, but the rebuilding of a spiritual house that is made up of living stones with him being the chief cornerstone, the stone upon which this new living building is built. 
So the text tells us we came to the living stone, but we too are living stones that he is using to build together a spiritual house. Often you hear Christians refer to themselves as the temple of God. And that is true. There are a couple passages that reflect that. But the overwhelming majority of passages in the New Testament reflect that we together are the new house of God. It's not who we are individually, it's who we are together, that we are the building uh, stones, the living stones that make up this new house of God. It's really important to understand that this is not the house of God. We are the house of God. There's nothing spiritual about this building when it's empty. It's only spiritual when the church is here. Technically, you don't go to church. You are the church. We are the church gathered, and we are the church scattered when we go out into the marketplace and neighborhoods and schools during the week. It's now a living house of God. He refers to us, then, as a holy priesthood. It's probably hard for us to grasp the imagery like they would have in the first century. For those who had lived during the time of the temple, who understood that the presence of God was housed in the Holy of Holies in the temple, that sacrifices, that worship, that access to God all had to go through the priests. And the people could only experience so much, and then it was passed on to the priest, and only once a year, the, the high priest would enter into the ultimate presence of God, the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. But when Jesus was crucified, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies was torn in two, representing the fact that now we, as God's children, are the priests. We no longer have a mediator. There's no one between us and God other than Jesus Christ. There is no longer a two-tiered system with some clergy class that has more access to God than you do. You're the priest. You offer uh, your sacrifice to God. You have access into the very presence of God 24-7. It's actually a remarkable thing. We learned in verses 3 through 12 that what we as this generation since the resurrection of Christ experience is what the prophets longed for. They wondered who would be the generation that would actually live in the fulfillment of these promises. We were told it is so magnificent. The angels longed to look and to watch the fulfillment of these promises. We take so much for granted that we are the generation that live in the fulfillment of these promises. We function as believer priests with direct access into the presence of God. For those of you that might be visiting with us this morning from another church, a couple of things to think about. If you are part of a church or a denomination, that claims they are the only church or the only way to God. If they claim that you need them as a church or denomination to get to God, run. 
Run. You will never find your freedom in Christ in a place that believes what is so theologically incorrect. If you attend a church and the impression is that somehow the pastor, the minister, the priest has more access to God than you do, and somehow you have to go through that pastor or minister or priest in order to gain something from God. My advice, run. It's simply wrong. It's bad theology. Now, on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, you are a living stone making up the new spiritual house of God, and you yourself function as a believer priest with direct access into the presence of God. It's such a wonderful truth we're left with. Well, who would possibly then not believe this? Well, the second part of verse 7, but for those who disbelieve, meaning they disbelieve the message of the gospel, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. There's no question who the rulers are. Jesus actually quoted this same passage when he walked on this earth, and he identified the rulers that rejected the cornerstone that God chose as precious were the religious leaders of the day. Religion is about position, it's about power, it's about status, it's about control. It's about needing the religion and the religious leaders to somehow get to God. In the first century, the Jewish religious leaders ran the show. You had to have them, you had to have their religion, you had to have their position and power to have any access to God. They were wealthy, they were powerful, they were in control, they had it all figured out. Then along comes God's choice, precious cornerstone to begin to build a new spiritual house that was not based on a bunch of religious activity. It was based on the grace and mercy of God. That apart from religion, if anyone would choose to believe by faith, they could be radically born again in Christ. This completely undercut the power and the position and the control of the religious system. So the rulers rejected. They were offended by, they stumbled over this new choice living cornerstone, which was Christ the one that God himself had sent to fulfill the promise of salvation. Have you ever asked yourself, why in today's world is Christianity uniquely set apart for criticism and attack? 
Once again, in 2016, research shows that the demographic of people in the world that were most persecuted around the world were Christians. Why is that? Why is it that even in our own country, people seem to bend over backwards to explain away even the worst behavior by people who are religious, unless they're Christians. And Christians are uniquely targeted for criticism and even persecution. Why is that? The answer is because what every world religion has in common is it is based on a form of self-righteousness which allows people to keep their own self-righteous ways intact. What is dramatically different about the message of the gospel is it starts with the message, you are a sinner. People stumble over that. People are offended by that. How dare you say that? Who are you to say that I'm a sinner? The message of the gospel goes on to say, and by the way, you cannot save yourself. Self-righteousness will not do. Therefore, there's only one hope, and that is to believe that this living chief cornerstone, choice and precious in the sight of God, Jesus himself is the only way of salvation. The culture reacts to that. They stumble over that. They stumble over the claim that they're sinners. They stumble over the claim they can't save themselves. And they stumble over this idea that Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. Therefore, they disbelieve. Therefore, they reject the message of the gospel. What was true in the first century is equally true today that people are offended and stumble over this message. But to those who believe, it is the message of salvation. It is the life-changing message of the gospel. He ends this part of the discussion in verse 9 by pulling phrases from the Old Covenant and identifying us today as the fulfillment of these words. For you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a chosen race because we root back to one seed, the imperishable seed of Christ, a royal priesthood. We already talked about that. We are believer priests, a holy nation, citizens of heaven, Aliens on earth, one nation, the people of God. But I think my favorite is that we are God's very own possession. One way to think about this. The world is full of several billion people. I have lots of friends. I have lots of acquaintances. I have lots of people I know that know me. But of the billions of people on planet Earth, there are three. 
that are uniquely special to me because they belong to me. One of the greatest privileges for me in life is the opportunity to be a dad. And there's only three people on planet Earth out of the billions of people that live here that can genuinely call me dad. Out of the billions of people on Earth, there's three people that are unique and special to me because they are mine. They are my children. This is, in essence, what Peter is saying out of the billions of people on earth and all the people that have ever lived. There is a group of people, a very special people, chosen, called out, radically redeemed, that God says, you, out of all these people on planet earth, are my special possession. You belong to me. It's powerful imagery. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. In other words, bring glory to the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy in order that we might declare to the world that we have been transferred out of darkness into light. At one time, we were nothing more than sinners, misfits, and losers. Now, we are the people of God. At one time, we were people under condemnation. Now, we have received mercy. The calling to love flows out of what is true of us now in Christ. How do we declare the excellencies of God? How do we declare that we have been transferred from darkness to life in how we love one another? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, set free from our selfishness, set free from our self-sufficiency, set free from our self righteousness, but also understanding that when my days are defined by fear, when my days are defined by anxiety, when my days are defined by despair and by hopelessness, that requires me to be self-focused. That's the problem with these negative emotions is I just think about myself all day long. I think about how everything in the world affects me. But to ultimately find my hope in Christ that is safe and secure because it's not based on my performance, but it's based on the grace and mercy of God when ultimately my hope is found in Christ. I can be set free from myself and actually free to think of others as more important than myself, to actually genuinely love my neighbor as myself. The invitation to salvation is an invitation into the love that has defined God for eternity. 
The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father. This is the life and the love that has defined God forever. And salvation is the invitation into that love. It's an invitation to dance with God. To the music of amazing grace. But we don't dance alone. It is an invitation to come together as the people of God, to dance together in the presence of God, to declare the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. My prayer is that we, having understood and believed the gospel, will dance together in the presence of God. For we are the people of God. Our Father, we celebrate this magnificent truth this morning. God, I'm so thankful for this gathering of believers that is your bride, that is your church. Lord, we once weren't your people. We were just sinners and misfits and losers. God, today we are your people. At one time we were under condemnation. Today we have received your mercy. We dance together in your presence joyfully. For we are the people of God. In Jesus' name.